You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. Everybody breaking bones It's a monster party Thank you for listening to episode 23 of Where is the Line? My name is Kevin and with me today, as always, is my friend and uh, according to a few of our listeners, the cutest redhead in podcasting, Samantha. Say something disturbing, Samantha. There's death in this box. There's death in this box. When you hear the phrase, there's death in this box, honk your horn. (laughs) Before we get started, I have been sworn to say the phrase, I love pork chop. What? (laughs) (laughs) A new friend, pork chop, is going to make some stickers for Where is the Line? Oh, wow. That's awesome. So thank you for that, Pork Chop. I love Pork Chop, too. Yeah, you need to meet him. He's a really funny guy. Okay. I bought his daughter a Jason Voorhees mask and a plastic machete Oh. for Christmas. Nice. Apparently, she loves it. They might be lying to me. But this kid, this kid's uh, like three, four years old. I don't know. <laughs> she will come over to my mother's house because these people are neighbors with my mother. And uh, my mother will ask her, what does Jason do? And the two or three year old or four year old yeah. or whatever will go, kill, 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 kill. <laughs> <laughs> that is a child after my own heart. Yeah, it reminds me of myself <laughs> yeah. when I was that age. Amazing. But anyway, uh, thank you, Pork Chop, for the upcoming stickers. Uh, speaking of people that we need to be thanking, we've got even more patrons now. Unbelievable. <laughs> At our depraved level, we have Maddie Smith. You know who that is, don't you? I do. It's the cousin of Liz. (laughs) It's Liz's sister. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. I meant sister of Liz. Yeah, so that whole family's giving us some money. Liz's mother is also a patron, Sherry, who showed up to one of our movie nights. Gosh, thank you so much, the Smiths. At our disturbed level, we have Tyler Hager from Ohio. What's up, Tyler? Sorry. (laughs) Heather Hamilton. Heather Hamilton. I believe I know her. I believe you do. I've known her for over 22 years now. We met in high school. You've known her longer than me. I know. I know. Just barely. Well, I'm going to have to kill her. (laughs) Yeah. Heather is one of my closest best friends, aside from you. And uh, she just recently got engaged. Mm -hmm. I heard that. Congratulations, Heather and Jonathan. That's right. She's got a wonderful man, Jonathan, and they are the sweetest, cutest couple 
ever, and we wish them all the best. They do seem very happy together. Yeah. So congratulations, Heather and Jonathan. And finally, we have another patron who knows us who has (laughs) very understandably asked that we not share her last name. Totally understandable. (laughs) Laura, thank you. Laura, I love you so much. Thank you. I don't really know you that well, but I do appreciate it. And I love you too. Yes. From a distance. Thank you, Laura. Thank you all. So, Samantha. Yes. How do you feel about snakes? Well, you know, Kevin, I'm kind of terrified of them. I kind of am too. I respect the serpent for sure. Yeah. I'm not afraid of them if they're at a distance from me. But were I to walk up on one, I'd lose my shit. Yes, I have walked up on a rattlesnake before, and I thought it was a baby rattlesnake, and I thought it was a bungee cord because of the designs on its back. I thought it was, you know, those like little bungee cords. Mm -hmm. I thought it was like a tan bungee cord laying in the grass, and I bent down to pick it up, and then its head raised up, and I was frozen in fear, and I was at my parents' house, so like I pulled out my cell phone really slowly while I'm standing right in front of this baby rattlesnake, and I call my dad to come outside. And he got a shovel and just kind of scooped it and flung it <laughs> away. But I nearly pissed myself. You know, my dad, he's a, a, one of these guys who likes to have all these old hot rods and things. Yeah. In fact, like, he moved and I was trying to find his house and I knew it was his house because there were black marks coming out of the driveway. <laughs> he's always got some hot rod thing and he does drag racing yeah. and stuff. But anyway... When I was a kid, we'd ride around, and if he saw a poisonous snake in the road, his method of killing it was to roll down the window and hold his head out and drive up where he has the back wheels on the snake, and then he would peel out. Oh, my gosh. That's kind of (laughs) cruel. It is, now that I think about it. Yeah. You know... I mean, I'm sure it's a quick death. I'm sure. But I'm not sure how much of that was, I need to protect people from this venomous snake, and how much of that was, I've got enough horsepower (laughs) to disintegrate a snake head. You know, yeah, like, I don't don't want to kill a poisonous snake, unless it's trying to hurt me, obviously. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, you know, my dad, my parents, they live in a lake house, Mm -hmm. and my dad will sit out on their back patio with a gun and blow water moccasins away that are coming up on their shore. I don't know how I feel about that. He says he needs to because there's kids that swim around that area, so he's protecting the children. But I know he totally gets off on blowing water moccasins away. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. If you're disinclined to hear about snakes, you might want to avoid this episode. Yes. Are you ready to get into it, though? Yes. Let's do it. Do you see what I did there? I did. (laughs) So I don't believe we've ever quoted a Bible verse on this show before. No. Uh, But this episode necessarily begins with one. It's from the New Testament's Mark 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. These two sentences, one of which is a terrible run-on sentence, are the basis for the extraordinarily dangerous and terrifying act 
of Christian snake handling. Many believers who have taken up the serpent as a display of their own personal faith have predictably gotten themselves bitten. And if you are someone who is determined to make yourself grievously ill at your next worship service, and if you're unable to entice one of those rattlesnakes copperheads to strike you, there is another, more surefire option for you. You can guzzle some strychnine. You sure can. Unsurprisingly, many followers of the Christian sects that practice snake handling and poison drinking have died. But snake handling is really kind of a fascinating practice. For today's episode, we'll be zeroing in on one particular snake handling preacher named Glenn Summerford, who in 1991 became convinced that his wife was having an affair. The suspicion of his own beloved boning another dude <laughs> gnawed at Summerford until finally he felt that he had to know the truth. He didn't spy on his wife or hire a P.I. Instead, he decided to ask the one being who would absolutely, positively know the truth. The one entity who knows the truth of everything. Glenn Summerford, in a very roundabout and terrifying way, asked God. <laughs> According to his wife at this time, Darlene, he did so by shoving her hand into a box filled with rattlesnakes because obviously God would shield her from the serpent's bite unless she had, as Glenn Summerford suspected, been fucking other dudes. Darlene was bitten twice, thus confirming to Glenn Summerford that he had been made a cuckold. So who in the hell are these people and what the hell is wrong with them? That's the topic for today. Glenn Summerford and the practice of snake handling and poison drinking in Appalachia and the American South. I can hardly wait. Whether or not you're a religious person, you have to admit the Bible says some crazy shit. Agreed. Stoning, mm -hmm. gay men, not wearing mixed fabrics. Women should be subservient. Women should be subservient. Deuteronomy... 23.1 says, quote, no man whose testicles have been crushed or whose penis has been cut off may enter the Lord's assembly. I have never heard that. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Deuteronomy has a couple of peculiar things to say. Uh, Deuteronomy 25.11 through 25.12 says, if two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together and the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him and puts her hand and seizes his genitals. Then you shall cut off her hand. You shall not show pity. So if uh, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so, married ladies out there, if uh, your husband gets in a fight and to protect him, you grab the genitalia of the man who is accosting him. You're going to hell. Amazing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We're just merely stating facts. That's crazy. We never make fun of any religion, obviously, and totally believe in freedom of religion. But I'm sorry. I'm a human with a brain that can read. Well, and I think that most people, even most Christians, the ones that I like anyway, 
<laughs> we'll admit that there's some weird stuff in the Bible. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and, and people choose to... Interpret that. Interpret these as metaphors. Mm-hmm. Although I'm not sure what the metaphor is with no man whose testicles have been crushed may enter the Lord's assembly, but whatever. I'm sure that's a metaphor for something. (laughs) But, you know, here in Alabama, in places like where me and Samantha grew up, these are rural, poor areas. And a lot of people in these places don't have a whole lot to hold on to apart from their faith. And there also isn't a whole lot in terms of entertainment around these small town, these small southern towns. Absolutely. In Scottsboro, Alabama, which is where a lot of today's story is going to take place, 15% of those people live below the poverty line. In the town that I grew up in, Nauvoo, Alabama, 25% of the people live below the poverty line. Wow. And so when you when you live somewhere like this, if you're accustomed to living in a city, people there are concerts that come through town. There's things to do. Yeah. When you're out in these small towns... Not so much. In the town that I grew up in, we used to have, there were a couple of things that would happen yearly. One was the snake handlers would come to our town. Ah. So there would be a revival up Slick Lizard Road. Oh my, okay. They would put out a tent and the snake handlers would come to town. And then also, once a year, retired wrestlers would come to the town. Really? Yeah. And That's... so in the uh, the yeah, the school that I started school in, which closed down in the third grade, they would every year, wrestlers who had gotten a little too old would come to town. Uh-huh. It, it, and that was back in the day when people were still arguing about whether or not wrestling is real. Yeah. And... So they had, a, they would always have the, you know, the stereotypical bad guy. So they had a Russian who came out waving a Russian flag and he was wearing a, a red, whatever the suit yeah. is that wrestlers wear. They'd call that the heel. And, you know, all of this stuff was obviously scripted, but at the time people were still arguing about it. And so I am in second, third grade mm-hmm. and the wrestlers come in and the Russian guy comes out waving his flag and I fucking hate him. <laughs> Then the American wrestler comes out waving the American flag, and the Russian wrestler distracts the American wrestler and pulls out of his boot a piece of metal that he hit the American wrestler with. (laughs) And at the time, the referee's back was turned, (laughs) and seven-year-old me runs up to the side of the ring screaming at the ref that the Russian had pulled something out of his boot. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, that's not making it in. That's That's not a good story. That was a good story, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, small town Alabama, small town South in general, there's not a lot to do. So when a preacher in his congregation shows up to spread the word of God, and when that preacher shows up with a box full of deadly venomous snakes, it grabs attention in places like this. Yes. So let's talk a minute about how snake handling began in the South. You know, it, it's it's endlessly amazing to me the things that people will latch on to in the Bible and the things that they'll just kind of let go. Mm-hmm. And this this passage about true believers taking up the serpent and not being injured, it's odd to me that that's, that's something that the people in Appalachia and the American South have clung on to as closely as they have. Mm-hmm. So snake handling started to appear in the United States in the early 1900s, 
There's some confusion about who exactly started this practice, but it's generally agreed that the person who brought this into popularity was a man named George Went Hensley. And he is in large part responsible for the proliferation of the practice of snake handling across the South. Uh, Hensley, it was said that he was an alcoholic. We know he had gotten arrested for moonshining when he lived in Tennessee. Uh, But he escaped from prison, and this is when he established the Church of God with Signs Following, which is the denomination most closely associated with snake handling. Right. And the denomination that the subject of today's show belonged to. Hensley said that he started snake handling after he was walking along a hillside And he began pondering the strength of his own relationship to God. According to him, it was during this pondering that he came across a snake and he began to pray. So he was aware of the Mark 16 passage that we started the show off with. So he knelt and he prayed for a moment. And then he picked up a snake and took it home with him. (laughs) (laughs) So he brings the snake home with him. He keeps it for a while. He decides he's going to take it to church with him. So Hensley and his new snake and his knowledge of this Bible passage yes, all go to church together. (laughs) And Hensley insists that the congregates start passing around this snake that he's found outside. And it was a hit. People at the church, this was something that they hadn't really seen before. They had maybe heard of it, but they hadn't seen it. And everybody's really into this. And Hensley starts traveling around. He starts collecting more snakes and traveling around with them, having revivals. Mm -hmm. The reception was kind of mixed in terms of attendance, but it wasn't unusual for Hensley to draw crowds of 500 to 700 people back then. That's huge. So during his tenure as a Baptist minister, one of Hensley's followers died from being bitten by one of his snakes. George Hensley himself speculated that he had personally been bitten over 400 times. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The last of these bites occurred in 1955 while he was preaching and putting on his show in Florida. One of the snakes bit Hensley and he very quickly became seriously ill. He refused medical help, which is something that a lot of the snake handling believers will do. Absolutely. They pretty much always refuse medical help because they are expecting God to either take them or let them live. Well, unfortunately for Hensley, God took him. They did. Those oscillating fans that the congregation put on him just didn't work. (laughs) Oscillating fans? Maybe not oscillating, but I did I did read that they put box fans all around him to cool oh, really? yes, to cool him off while he was going through the throes of the venom. They thought that that would be the way. Well, that's okay. <laughs> George Hensley's name is the one that comes up the most when people are talking about how the practice of snake handling got disseminated across the South. But he wasn't the only person practicing this. In the early 20th century. That's right. There was another man, a man by the name of James Miller, who around 1912, uh, he was a religious man and he had meditated on the Bible and he had come to his own conclusion that taking up serpents was necessary for one's faith. So in 1912, he brought serpent handling to Scottsboro, Alabama, in particular Sand Mountain. And Pentecostal Alabamians follow James Miller's teachings. Do they still? 
Yes, still to this day, uh, the Church of Jesus with signs following is run by followers of Miller. Yeah, and James Miller at the time in 1912, he had not heard of George Hensley. He did not know that George Hensley was going around the Deep South also handling serpents. Um, So he wasn't copycatting. He had just come to this conclusion on his own. Hmm. Yeah, and and another thing, some people may or may not know that these sects of Pentecostal churches, they're very private and they're not public. You can't just walk into this church and become a member. And a lot of them are just generations of families that are in these churches. And that means that there's a long history of independence from any national denomination. And that gives these churches an autonomy from each other. They do not speak with each other, even though they all pretty much follow the same practices, you know, of drinking poison, handling serpents, uh, speaking in glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues, and uh, laying hands on which is the belief that you can heal someone with the power of the mind. Uh, they all follow these same beliefs, but they're all a little bit different in each church because they just they do not talk to each other. So George Hensley and James Miller uh, combined did a lot towards bringing snake handling into the American South. But this is a practice that continued long after their times. And became banned in all states in America except for West Virginia, pretty much in the 40s and 50s. It does, though, seem like uh, a lot of these congregations didn't seem to care that it got banned. No, they didn't. And, you know, police, they always look the other way. They don't want to get involved and try to actually enforce these anti-snake handling laws. So, Well, yeah. in a lot of these rural, place, rural places, um, like where I grew up, mm-hmm. the, the, some sect of snake handlers would come through town once a year and have a revival. Our town was small enough that it didn't even have police. So um, if anything happened, yes. it needed to be something serious and you called the county law. And I think a lot of these churches are out in rural places like that. So oh, yeah. uh, you don't really worry about the law dog too much when you live somewhere like that. So we talked a little bit about how the practice of snake handling in the name of religion spread across the South. But the specific snake handler that we're talking about is Glenn Summerford. Oh, yes. He turned out to be a much more interesting guy than I thought he was going to be. Same here. <laughs> um, so let's, uh, let's get started with him. So, so Glenn Summerford, uh, the subject of our story, he grew up poor. He had six brothers and six sisters. He had an additional sibling uh, who died at a very young age. Um, but in general, he considers himself to have six brothers and six sisters. And it seems like both of Glenn's parents were abusive. Growing up, he and his mother were often on the run from his father. So they were kind of moving around trying to avoid Glenn's abusive father, who was apparently chasing them around everywhere they would go. Uh, They said that Glenn was a quiet child. He did get bullied a lot up until a certain point. Mm Mm-hmm. And when Glenn stopped getting bullied, it was because his mother, who he was traveling around with, married a new man who was former special forces in the American military. Oh. And Glenn's new stepdad taught Glenn how to fight because Glenn was getting beat up all the time. So his new stepdad, with all of his special forces military training, starts teaching these things to Glenn. And some of Glenn's biggest bullies were these three cousins that he had. Mm -hmm. And so when Glenn was about 10, his stepdad told him that they were going to go visit these three cousins 
and that Glenn Summerford was going to kick the shit out of them. <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. Uh, Glenn's stepdad took him over to these family members' house, these three cousins. And according to Glenn, quote, it was a scrappy fight that ended with me biting the leg of the biggest one who went to hollering for daddy. <laughs> And so after this happens, uh, I mean, Glenn beats up these three guys. One of them was apparently way bigger than him, and uh, he took out all three of them. And after that, he decides that he really likes fighting. Mm-hmm. And this is something that uh, he pursues throughout his young life. Uh, he moves to Chicago when he's 15. He starts fighting in these illegal warehouse boxing matches. So he's training to be Golden Gloves, which uh, if you're not from America, that's that's one of the bigger amateur boxing organizations that we have in the U.S. And it's really the one that everybody's heard of. So he starts working towards this goal, but he, he never makes it to uh, the Golden Gloves. Uh, he was apparently a pretty good fighter, though. Uh, he at one point won a brand new 56 Ford. Amazing. For a fight. <laughs> yeah. And so he has a lot of respect for his stepdad. So when you when you read uh, the book, The Serpent and the Spirit, you can tell that his stepdad is someone who might not appeal to most of us. But Glenn held a really high opinion of him. And, you know, this, this is a story that I've heard told over and over. Uh, my grandfather told me about when he thought that he was big enough to whip his own dad and got his ass kicked. <laughs> uh, and Glenn Summerford... <laughs> Tried this with his special forces stepdad, and Uh it went very poorly. (laughs) So Glenn gets drunk one night, and he's hanging out with his uncle and also his special forces stepdad. And uh, he believes that he has trained enough and won enough fights at this point that he can take his stepdad out. So he challenges his stepdad to a fist fight right there in the house. And in very short order, Glenn Summerford goes flying through the window out into the yard. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) and so but glenn's only about 15 years old at this point so his uncle goes up to his stepdad and tries to reprimand his stepdad for throwing this 15 year old boy out the window and uh guess what happens does he go out the window he goes out the window too (laughs) so glenn's stepdad throws the uncle out the window a couple of minutes after glenn took his trip (laughs) so after that like they made up very quickly But Glenn continues fighting. He has had pretty good luck, except against his own stepdad. He had about 30 amateur fights before he was 18. Um, Wow. And he had won all of them, I believe. And so he moves to New York to try to find some more fights. And he uh, runs into Joe Lewis. Really? The famous American boxer. And according to uh, Glenn, Joe Lewis gave him a couple of pointers. They never really hung out a whole lot. But uh, he did some minimal training with Joe Lewis. How about that? He continues fighting. I don't think he even knows how many fights mm-hmm. he did. One night after a fight, which he won, a street fight broke out outside of the uh, more organized fight. And uh, Glenn decided he was going to get involved in this fight after he had won. <laughs> <laughs> the the fight that had taken place just a few minutes earlier. And somewhere during this fight, which is a big brawl with a lot of people, Glenn gets his skull busted. Oh, my. And uh, he has to go to the hospital. And the doctors tell him, Glenn Summerfield, your fighting days are done. If you take another blow like that, you're going to die. Yeah. Glenn decides that uh, this has 
put an end to his dreams of golden gloves competition. And he apparently reads this advice from his doctor kind of peculiarly because Glenn stops his semi-professional boxing career, his amateur boxing career. His career in which there's actually referees around and things. Yes. Um, You know, people are betting on these fights. He takes his doctor's advice to stop doing that, but he moves back to Alabama and uh, just starts getting into fights here. (laughs) Uh, And he's fighting here still for money. So there'll be these little unsanctioned illegal fighting rings that'll spring up around the South and Mm -hmm. you'll join those. Apparently the competition is not as stiff around here as it was in Chicago. Really? For some reason, he felt like he would get brain damage if he kept fighting towards the Golden Gloves. Yeah. That he might die. But he felt like he could just come back to Alabama and whip everybody. (laughs) And not get hit in the brain again. (laughs) So once he comes back to Alabama, he meets his first, who will be his first wife, and they get married. This person's name is Doris. So he marries Doris. He's still doing this fighting, uh, and he loses one of these fights really badly to the point that he gets a punctured lung. Um, He's bleeding into both lungs, apparently, and the doctors give him three days to live. Oh, my gosh. But... Glenn Summerford is fortunate in that his friends prayed for him, and he recovered. Wow. Well, that's a miracle. Shortly after that, he got arrested and sentenced to 18 months for stealing a car. Ugh, Glenn. Uh, When he goes to prison, he starts participating in the prison fighting rings. You don't say. (laughs) And uh, so he's winning some money in prison fighting. Once he serves his 18 months, he gets out. Does some more prize fighting. Mm-hmm. So by this time, so he's been out of prison for a while. He's continuing to pick up some spare cash fighting. He and Doris have several children at this point. And one night, and Glenn believes that this happened because of so many people he has, quote, whooped. Uh-huh. Uh, that someone got mad and set his house on fire. Oh, gosh. That's not really verifiable. Right. but. His house did catch on fire. He's got all of these kids in there and his wife in there. He wakes up, uh, realizes the house is on fire, and he starts tossing children out the window. Yeah. But he missed one. Oh, no. So one of their children, uh, their youngest child, burned Mm -hmm. up in that house fire. That's terrible. And uh, uh, several of the children were injured with burns. Uh, A lot of them weren't too severe. Mm -hmm. But his wife, Doris, got burned really badly. And she spent some considerable amount of time in the hospital. And while she's in the hospital, Glenn's stepdad, the Special Forces stepdad, who, according to Glenn, is uh, really the only person who has treated him right Mm -hmm. throughout his whole life. (laughs) Yeah. Except for throwing him out the window that one time, I guess. (laughs) Glenn's stepdad dies. So he's lost a child, several injured children from this house fire. Yeah. His wife is still in the hospital dealing with the burns that she got from this event. Right. And his stepdad dies. The person who is more important to him than anyone dies in the middle of all of this. That's a heavy load. Doris eventually recovers from these injuries that she had from that house fire. And she starts spending more and more time with her sick mother. And uh, Glenn and Doris just start spending less and less time around each other. And their relationship starts falling apart. While Doris is gone away taking care of her mother and spending so much time away from home... Uh, Glenn starts fooling around. Uh, (laughs) He starts hooking up with other women. And eventually, Glenn 
and Doris have what was, according to Glenn, an amicable divorce. Mm-hmm. Glenn seems to really lament letting Doris go. Yeah. According to him, she was a very good woman and somebody that he probably should have spent the rest of his life with. Oh, dang. And he probably should he have. He probably should have <laughs> uh, when you hear the rest of the story. <laughs> oh, shit. So Glenn and Doris are no longer a thing. Uh, Glenn's continuing to fight to make some money. Um, and that's when he meets who will be his second wife, Darlene, Mm -hmm. uh, who was a major player in the story that we're talking about. So he's seeing Darlene, uh, but he's still visiting Doris because she has his children. They're living with her. Yeah. Uh, One day, Doris's new boyfriend is home when Glenn goes to visit them. And Doris's new boyfriend is unhappy about Glenn's presence in their home. And according to Glenn, this new beau of Doris's is huge, way bigger than Glenn. According to Glenn, I think he's exaggerating, but he says that this man was six foot nine. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. It is. It's possible. I know people that height. Me too. Uh, but he. <laughs> Either way, the way Glenn describes it, this guy is definitely in a different weight class from Glenn. So this new guy. Doris's new man pops off at Glenn, and Glenn punches this man so hard that his eyeball pops out. Oh, my God. According to Glenn, he punched this man in the head. His right eye popped out and was just resting on his nose. (laughs) Oh, my God. And uh, even after his eyeball popped out, uh, Glenn was... He was unmanageable at this point. He was incredibly angry, and he keeps beating this man even after he's knocked his eyeball out. Right. And the man almost dies. And so Glenn is following this guy's condition very closely because if this man dies, Glenn's getting charged with murder. Mm -hmm. Fortunately for Glenn, at least, and for the man, he survived. And Glenn just gets slapped with an assault charge over that. And it reads to me. And I might be wrong, but it reads to me like Darlene, Glenn's second wife, yes, kind of got off on having a badass ass-kicking boyfriend. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, he was fighting for money a lot, and he was fighting just not for money a lot. And it seems like a lot of those times that he would get in non-profit fights, Darlene had something to do with it. I feel like you're right about that. <laughs> uh, but you know what? Maybe that made them a decent couple. The man likes fighting. She's the kind of person who likes watching her man fight. Yeah. <laughs> it's working out at this point, And they get married twice over the years. <laughs> <laughs> they got married twice because uh, when he married Darlene the first time, he was still married to Doris. <laughs> so that one didn't count. Yes. So he gets a divorce from Doris and uh, gets an official legal marriage to Darlene after that. And they have one child together and they name it Marty. Mm -hmm. There's a period during all of this, uh, shortly after Glenn has left Doris and started seeing Darlene, that Glenn, Doris, and Darlene, all three, are working at the same place. That's not good. (laughs) So, you know, I said that that Glenn has described this divorce between him and Doris as being very amicable mm-hmm. and that she is a good woman and that seems to uh, try to impress upon you that the two of them still get along. Uh, the author of The Serpent and the Spirit talked to Doris, though, and that's not really how she sees it. Mm-hmm. When she was talking about this time when all three of them were working at the same place, she says, quote, 
I went to work with Glenn and Darlene. The only way I went to work with them was to find a way to kill both of them. <laughs> so so she she didn't really see the split up uh, as being the smooth ride that Glenn saw it as being. Yeah. So Glenn, despite his rough background, I mean, he's gotten in trouble a lot. He does all his fighting. He's been arrested several times. But he's always been a believer. Uh, he might would have considered himself to be a non-practicing Christian in his early life. Right. But after all this fighting and violence, he decides that it's time to get right with the Lord and actually study the Bible. The problem, though, is that Glenn is illiterate. That's sad. Glenn dropped out of school, I believe, in the seventh grade. He never learned to read very well. Mm-hmm. So rather than acquiring a tutor, picking up some materials to help him learn to read, he decides to put this, as he will eventually do with a great many things, in the hands of God. So he prays and he fasts for 30 days. And according to Glenn Summerford, he comes out the other end of this 30 days able to read the Holy Bible. Holy shit. Then he starts attending church services regularly. Pretty quickly after he starts going on a regular basis, he's running the show at the church. Oh, yeah. Um, He's laying on the hands. He's healing the sick. Uh, It it seems like a lot of the longtime congregates were a little put off that uh, (laughs) Glenn comes in with his superpowers just Mm -hmm. right out of the gate. Yes. And they've been going there for years and can't do some of this shit that Glenn's doing. Exactly. But he's sticking around and uh, he eventually kind of grows on these people. So Glenn would have probably been exposed to at least the idea of snake handling when he was very young. He claims that he's been doing snake handling alone and in secret years before he even met Darlene. Yes. They both apparently started handling snakes one day when Glenn was out hiking and he came upon a copperhead and just reached down and scooped it up. Darlene was with him on this nature hike a little bit behind him, and she caught up and saw what Glenn was doing with the snake, and she has a religious fit of some sort. Um, I believe she may have started talking in tongues, and she snatches the copperhead away from Glenn, Mm -hmm. and she's holding on to it herself, and now this couple, who already had so much in common, are about to make some waves. That's exciting. So shortly after this, they start bringing these snakes in the church. Pointing to this passage in the Bible, those who believe shall not be bitten or whatever the hell it says. Mm-hmm. So they would bring 30 or more snakes, venomous snakes, into church during these services. Yes. And uh, Glenn tended to get bit a lot. Yes. <laughs> was... Can I point something out? Something I came across, the Summerford family, because, you know, Glenn and his cousins, uh, they all take up serpents in their churches. But something that they always love to say before they introduce the snake out of the box, Mm -hmm. they'll tell the whole congregation, there's death in this box. And Mm. then they remove the snake. Well, that's very dramatic. Yes. Um, So Glenn's traveling around with his 30 plus snakes, getting bit what apparently seems to be every other time he touches one of them. (laughs) Oh, and I want to point out the reason 
Glenn and so many others that take up serpents are able to get bit so many times and live to tell the tale is that often snakes or serpents, uh, oftentimes they'll give a dry bite, so Mm -hmm. there's no venom. Other times they'll only give a little venom because it is so hard on their metabolism to create their venom. They don't want to just blow it all. So that's how these uh, people can sustain so many bites and just keep going sometimes because it's not always going to be a fatal bite. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times it's just going to make you sick. Yes. After a little time doing these services, Glenn has been bitten so many times he does not even know how many times he's been bitten. Mm-hmm. Every now and then, a snake would not do that nicking type of bite that you were talking about. Occasionally, one would latch onto him, mm-hmm. and uh, Glenn Summerford would get near the brink of death. But he always has these explanations for why he got bit. So this yes. man has probably been bit a hundred times, <laughs> so he's got a hundred explanations mm-hmm. for why every single one of those happened. So... One of my favorite examples of uh, these explanations is that one time he was touching a rattlesnake with his right hand. And according to Glenn, the Lord told him to pick it up with that same hand. But Glenn was not paying attention. And instead of picking up with his right hand, he picked it up with his left hand. And as a result, the diamondback rattlesnake that he had picked up bit him and almost killed him. Yes. Right after that, God also got a copperhead to bite him. (laughs) Which he wasn't even touching at the time. And uh, after those two bites, Glenn really came really close to dying. It's interesting that Glenn is not, because you you can read, like, Serpent and the Spirit is largely, the author does not inject himself much into that at all. Mm -hmm. These are just verbatim transcriptions of conversations that the author had with people involved in the story. Right. And I don't mean to belittle Glenn Summerford over this, but he's not intelligent. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem that Darlene is either. But it's interesting that, that someone like Glenn can find so many explanations for why these snake bites are his own fault via the breaking of some weirdly nuanced rule that the Lord has established for right. him. Mm-hmm. So now Glenn and Darlene have established themselves as the premier snake handling duo. Yes, For the southeastern United States. And that kind of brings us up to the incident uh, that is the whole reason that we're talking about this couple right now. That's right. The two of them have very different recollections of what happened on this night. So according to Darlene, Darlene says that Glenn was always an abusive husband. Yes. She says that she was never allowed to go out anywhere unless Glenn or their son Marty was with her because Glenn was enormously jealous of her. Yes. And to be fair, Glenn might have had reason to be. There were some rumors and speculations about Darlene. There were enough rumors and speculations about (laughs) Darlene that I feel like Darlene probably did run around on Glenn And if I'm being perfectly honest, I think she was running around on Glenn quite a bit. Me too. In October 1991, Glenn and Darlene had been in an argument, which was nothing unusual. This couple fought all the damn time. He accused Darlene of infidelity with several men, and he named another preacher named Gene Sherbert. So after Glenn and Darlene get in this fight, She takes four over-the-counter sleeping pills, and according to her, this was not unusual. She was just planning to go to sleep. And according to Darlene, Glenn flips out when he finds out about these sleeping pills. He shows this bottle of these over-the-counter sleeping pills to their son, 
mm-hmm. and claims that Darlene is trying to commit suicide. Darlene claims that she had no intention of killing herself. Uh, but regardless, on this night that she takes these sleeping pills, Glenn gets her up out of bed and starts shoving his fingers down her throat to make her vomit up these pills. So on the same night, about 1 a.m. in the morning, the phone in Glenn and Darlene's house rings. And Darlene gets up to answer it, but she finds out that Glenn is already at the phone. And Glenn claims that the man on the other end is someone that Darlene has been having an affair with, who is the Reverend Gene Sherbert, and that Gene Sherbert told Glenn that he was fucking Glenn's wife. <laughs> Darlene's not buying it. She doesn't think anybody is on the other end of this phone. She thinks that Glenn just made this phone ring to get her up to pick a fight. And Darlene said, quote, and I told him, I said, there ain't nobody on the phone. And I said, you're lying because Gene Sherbert wouldn't tell you a lie like that. I said, you know he wouldn't. And uh, Glenn responds by beating Darlene at mm-hmm. this point, according to her. And at that point, Marty, their son, wakes up and he's begging his dad to stop beating his mother. Glenn eventually does stop beating her and they both just go to bed. So shortly after this uh, Reverend Gene Sherbert argument that the two are having, mm-hmm. Darlene tells Glenn that a good friend of his, a man named J.L. Lewis, kissed her. Against her will. So Glenn starts cursing at Darlene, and they both load up, and they go over to J.L. Lewis's place of business, and Glenn hits Lewis with a metal timing chain from a car engine. Good Lord. So Lewis gets hit in the head with this timing chain. Mm -hmm. He's bleeding. It hurts pretty bad, I would imagine. And a little while after that, uh, J.L. Lewis says that he wants to talk to Glenn about this whole misunderstanding, but that Glenn should leave Darlene at home because uh, Darlene's inclined to uh, distribute falsehoods. (laughs) So, but Darlene does not want to stay home because she says that she thinks that J.L. Lewis will, quote, lie about what happened between the two of them. Mm -hmm. All three of them, J.L. Lewis, Darlene, and Glenn, decide that they're going to meet at this oak tree in the middle of town. But Lewis, they see... J.L. Lewis drive by. So they go out to this 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 oak tree. They park the car. They're waiting on J.L. Lewis to get there. And they see him drive by, but he doesn't stop. According to Darlene, during this whole time that they're out here at this oak tree mm-hmm. waiting on J.L. Lewis, Glenn is getting more and more lit via the screwdrivers that he's driving around town drinking. <laughs> and as Glenn gets more drunk, he becomes more verbally abusive towards Darlene, according to her. Mm-hmm. And the way it reads is that Glenn is just casually dishing out death threats to her. Yes. <laughs> the entire time that they're on this little excursion. He claims that he's going to take her up onto a mountain and he knows where a cave is and he's just going to throw her in it and let yes. her die. Yes. Uh, he says he's going to throw her off a bridge because she can't swim. Yes. So she'll drown. He comes up with a quite a few creative methods of her execution over this time that they're looking for the man that he believes to be fucking his wife. But uh, instead of catching up with uh, Jail Lewis and instead of murdering Darlene, Glenn decides that they should go to the McDonald's drive-thru and get some burgers. <laughs> so amid all of these death threats and... Uh, Searching for the man who is sleeping with his wife, they go to McDonald's and grab some burgers and go home. 
And so they start eating, and Glenn goes off on Darlene again, threatening to shoot her in the face with a shotgun. Uh, And he actually, at one point, according to her, goes into the other room and grabs a shotgun. Darlene runs away, and according to her, their son, Marty, comes out at this point because he's hearing all this commotion, and he pulls a bow and arrow (laughs) out and threatens to shoot his dad, Glenn, with an arrow. That's... That touches my heart. Eventually, things settle down from this particular incident, Mm -hmm. and everybody finally gets to eat the McDonald's that they bought. (laughs) But Glenn is not done. No. Uh, He's... This week of hell is ramping up. Yeah, yeah. Things are ramping up at this point. Glenn's not done. Once he gets some food in him, uh, he gets his energy back up, and he starts screaming death threats at Darlene again. But now he's taking it farther, according to her. According to her, Glenn made Darlene write her own suicide note. Yes. And according to her, he grabs her by the hair, holds a gun in her face, and forces her to go outside, out behind their house, where they keep the snakes. He makes her open the lid to one of these snake enclosures. According to her, he's making Darlene do this because he doesn't want his fingerprints to be found on the snake enclosure. Makes no sense. That's his own damn snake enclosure. His fingerprints are supposed to be on it. Yes. I mean, when the cops take fingerprints, it's because they're looking for a suspect. In this case... You have one person who is accusing another person of forcing a venomous snake to bite them. You know who the alleged perpetrator is. You don't need his fucking fingerprints. Yes. Nobody fingerprinted these goddamn <laughs> snake cages. I don't know what. And, you know, and this this brings up something because, like I said, these two have very different tellings. Yes. Of what Extremely different tellings of what happened. So when Darlene says that... He's worried about fingerprints on his own snake enclosures. You have two options here. Either he is dumb enough to believe that he needs to wipe his own fingerprints off of his own property for fear that the cops are going to find his fingerprints somewhere that they necessarily should be, Mm -hmm. or that Darlene is stupid enough to feel like this is a reasonable story to make up. Mm -hmm. Because according to Glenn, none of this happened. Mm -hmm. Yes. Anyway, (laughs) nobody was going to check for the fucking fingerprints. So either Glenn was a goddamn idiot thinking that the cops are going to dust his own stuff looking for his prints, or Darlene is an idiot because she thinks that this is a good story. This is a good plausible story about what happened that evening. Yeah. I'm not sure who I believe at this Mm -hmm. point. Anyway, according to her, he's dragged her out behind the house by the hair. Uh, He's holding this gun to her head. He tells her that she can either shove her hand in this snake enclosure with these diamondback rattlers, or he's going to shove her face in it. So uh, she picks the wise choice and puts her hand in this snake enclosure. And she picks up a pretty large rattlesnake, and uh, it bites her lightly on the thumb, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. It wasn't a uh, full-on attack Mm -hmm. bite. But it did bite her. It did inject some venom into her. So Glenn tells her, after she gets bit that one time, uh, he knows it's just a nick, according to her. He tells her then that she needs to reach in and grab another one. And he says that he will let her live if this next snake does not bite her. And the next snake did not bite her. 
So Glenn and Darlene hang out for a little bit in the shed around the snakes. And Darlene is getting progressively sicker from this amount of venom that's been injected into her. Glenn decides that they can go back to the house. So they leave the shed and they're walking through the yard and Darlene stumbles and falls to the ground, sick. Uh, Glenn walks up to her, she says. He unzipped his fly and then he pissed on her. And he says, quote, that will revive you. So vomiting covered in urine and with rattlesnake venom coursing through her veins, Darlene finally makes it back to the house. And when she gets there, she collapses again on the front porch. Mm -hmm. And this time she's out. Um, When she woke up, according to her, Glenn, who had already (laughs) forced her hand in the snake enclosure, gotten her bitten, pissed on her head. The same man is now kicking her while she's passed out on the porch. Yes, Um, finally he gets tired of kicking her, he gets tired of yelling at her and cursing at her, and everyone goes to bed. The next morning, Glenn says that he's going to take her to the ER. Yes. So she says Glenn has agreed finally, he's going to take her to the ER, this looks very serious, but uh, they've got something they've got to do on the way to the ER, which is they have to drop off some videos that they had rented. Yes, absolutely. So they pull over <laughs> uh, to this little store that rents videos. Yeah, just uh, a small the local yeah. video store. Um, Glenn didn't feel like getting out of the car, so uh, he made Darlene take the videos and <laughs> her snake-bitten hand. <laughs> And he warned her. He said he was out there with his gun, Mm -hmm. and she better not say anything. So they got the videos back. No late fees. (laughs) All is well. Now we can go to the ER. Uh, But then another thing occurs to Glenn. He's running out of vodka, and he needs his screwdrivers to drive. Yes. So once they take the videos back, instead of going to the ER after that, they go to the local liquor store. So Glenn can buy some more vodka to put in his orange juice. And, uh, you know, by the time they've done all of that, I mean, that's a big day. Uh, Glenn's tired. Yeah. And uh, that whole ER thing, it just isn't uh, really appealing to him anymore. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) he tells Darlene he's going to take her to the hospital. They take some movies back and go get some liquor and then just go back home. Yeah. uh, Darlene said that when they finally pulled up to their house, she was just like, we're back home. And she was very devastated. And she did not want to get out of the car. So when they get back home, Glenn is getting drunker and drunker. And now he is just popping death threat after death threat off at Darlene, according to her. Darlene says that he even says, you've got to die because I want to marry another woman. Yeah. And uh, he even gives her a time. Uh, He says he's going to do about six o'clock that night. Yeah. (laughs) So six o'clock rolls around on this next night and... Glenn's plan is to take her back out to the snake enclosure and repeat the previous day's events. Uh, So just like before, he takes her out there with a gun shoved in her face. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just like before, he threatens to shove her face in there if she will not put her own hand in there. Yes, he says, you can take it on the cheek or the eye. And according to Darlene, this time, uh, he's going to be sure that, that Darlene gets bit because he starts poking the snakes with stick them all riled up before she puts her hand in there. And so this time, when she puts her hand in there, she gets bit and she gets bit bad this time. On the same hand. It's on the same hand. And this time, uh, the snake actually clamped down and injected its venom as though it were trying to kill something. Mm -hmm. So now, Darlene's been bitten twice in two days. 
The second time she goes inside, she lays down on the couch. Glenn is still cursing at her and her two snake bites. And according to her, she asks Glenn for some water, and he refuses to get her any water. And at that point, she starts vomiting. Um, According to her, he eventually relents and brings her a glass of water and a bucket to throw up in. And then her bladder starts relaxing, and she starts urinating on herself. And according to her at this point, when she needs it the most, she's vomiting, she's urinating on herself, probably some stuff coming out the back end too. Yes. Uh, Glenn comes in and takes her bucket away from her. So now she's lying on the floor, she's vomiting, she's urinating on herself, she's sliding in and out of consciousness, and during these few moments of consciousness that she has, she prays to God that she might be allowed to live. So eventually, uh, Glenn tires of watching the spectacle of his injured and possibly mortally wounded wife laying on the floor, urinating on herself and vomiting. Yes. And uh, he goes to bed. Uh, Once Glenn falls asleep, she crawls, according to her, she crawls into the kitchen and she calls her sister, who in turn calls an ambulance to come get Darlene. Yes. And Darlene expressly tells her sister, tell the police not to make a lot of noise. Don't turn on their sirens or their lights because I don't want them to wake up Glenn. And after she makes this call, according to her, she drags herself out of the house. She doesn't have the strength to walk anymore. So she drags herself down this dirt road leading out of their house, down their driveway, and into the main road that goes through their neighborhood just in time to see the lights of the ambulance coming over a hill just down the road from her. Yes. So she initially goes to um, the local medical center But the snake bites are very severe, so she has to be driven via the same ambulance to uh, UAB Hospital, which is one of the larger hospitals here in Alabama. Yeah, located in Birmingham. So that's Darlene's story. Mm -hmm. So according to her, Glenn's abusive, gun in her face, shoving her hand into these snake enclosures on two different days and not taking to their hospital. That is what Darlene said happened. Yes. That is nothing like what Glenn said happened. No. And first of all, the sentiment is both Glenn and Darlene wanted to divorce each other. Now, Darlene was afraid to actually get a divorce because she didn't want to lose custody of their son, Marty, to Glenn. And Glenn, people say, and maybe Glenn has revealed this same thought, he did not want to get a divorce because in the Pentecostal church, you cannot preach if you've gotten a divorce. And He obviously did not feel that divorcing Darlene was the way out. So having said that, yeah, Glenn's side of the story of what happened that night is much different. So first of all, Glenn says that the reason that Darlene was bitten at all was because she had backslid on her faith. Uh, She had taken to drinking again, like he's one to talk. Um, (laughs) You know, she was whoring around. Anna, she was at risk from falling from grace. Anna, that's why she got bit. Um, He says that she wanted to get rid of him so she didn't have to get a divorce and risk losing her son, like I said. And Glenn painted Darlene as someone that was obsessed with snakes, someone with a death wish. He said she was suicidal. And uh, he seemed to think that she had been plotting to kill him for some time. So when this eventually goes to trial, they're both telling these different stories. Uh, One witness on Glenn's behalf said that Darlene was plotting to kill Glenn Summerford with one of his own snakes. And... And that while she was trying to retrieve the snake, that uh, I believe she was going to put on Glenn in his sleep, it bit her. Yes. So according to Glenn, 
none of this shit with the urination on the hood, the gun to the face, the shoving the hand. According to Glenn, none of that happened. No. She was trying to kill him and accidentally got herself bitten. Yeah. Glenn says on the night of October 5th, when Darlene was bitten by a snake the second time, he's not even acknowledging the night before, but he says, I loved her. I didn't try to kill her. I kept her from killing herself. Glenn said that in the weeks leading up to that night that they had both actually backslid and taken a drink and again. So he admits that he was an alcoholic too. He said, she was bad to run around. On September 18th, I caught her with a man, a preacher from the church. When I told her on October 5th that I wanted a divorce, she tried to kill herself. Glenn says that Darlene took a whole box of Salmonex and a whole bottle of extra strength Tylenol and that he had to make her drink warm water so she would vomit the pills up. And then she threatened to kill him after that. So like you said, during the trial, Tammy Flippo, 23 at the time, and a member of the church, testified that Darlene had told her that this, there was a plot to kill Glenn. Darlene wanted to get rid of him, and she felt the only way was to do it with one of his own serpents. Now, to counteract that testimony, another member of the church, Sylvia Ingram, she testified that, in fact, Tammy Flippo is Glenn's mistress and had told her on several occasions that she had actually been able to sleep over at Glenn's house many times. And this, you know, these stories are so different. And when I first started looking into this, I kind of took everything at face value. I kind of believed Darlene. I felt like Glenn is just kind of an abusive snake handling asshole. Yeah, I got that vibe from him. Wife-beating asshole. But when you read more of this and when you read what Darlene actually says about what happened, a lot of what Darlene said didn't really make sense. And Darlene never admits to running around on Glenn. Right. I would put a good deal of money on the side that Darlene was cheating on Glenn. And in fact, even their own son thinks that Darlene was cheating on Glenn. What did Marty say about her? So Marty, their their only child, believed that that Darlene's interest in taking up serpents uh, had nothing to do with communing with the Holy Spirit. Yes. uh, That she was doing it to pick up dudes. Yes. Uh, her own son. According to her own son, her own son said, quote, I mean, she'd get up there and play with them snakes just like everybody else. I don't think she was trying to do right. I think she was just using it. Like the first church they had, she cheated on him at that one. I just can't remember that guy's name. <laughs> I know he played the bass fiddle and the guitar. Once she cheated on daddy with him, he didn't ever come back to church no more. His guitar case sat there forever. Yes. <laughs> I know. And there were so many rumors that Darlene was hooking up with different members of the congregation. There were rumors that she even had sex with her own stepchildren, Glenn's sons from his first marriage. Yeah, I I never came across that, but there are just story after story of someone who seems to have some kind of information about Darlene sleeping around. Yeah, not that that is any reason for someone to try to kill you. No, no. Be, yeah, yeah. What I don't it? care uh, how much infidelity you participate in. No one has the right to shove your hand into a snake enclosure. Absolutely not. So regardless of what the truth of this evening was, I kind of feel like it's somewhere in the middle. I, I do don't too. think that Glenn's a good person. No, I, I think don't. Glenn very likely is an abusive spouse. Yes, and mm-hmm. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Regardless of what actually occurred that night, and we'll never really know, Glenn Summerford was convicted in February of 1992 and later sentenced to 99 years. 
Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> and he spent about 11 years in prison. He did. Before, before something happened. Yeah, before his uh, <laughs> <laughs> very well thought out escape plan. Uh, in February 2003, Glenn escaped from a work detail that he was doing at the prison that he was at. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so they send the prisoners out in those orange suits to pick up trash, yeah. that kind of thing. He was out on one of those kinds of excursions and uh, went missing. <laughs> he escaped. The cops found him after that 45 minutes hanging out in a garbage can not that far from where his work detail was. For his three quarters of an hour in that garbage can, uh, he received an additional 30 years on top of the 99 he was already serving. That's right. Glenn Summerford is currently housed at the Bullock Correctional Facility in Union Springs, Alabama. Glenn's next parole hearing will be on June 1st, 2020. Thank you for listening to episode 23 of Where is the Line? We release new episodes on the 1st and the 13th of each month. So if you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss the next one. You might also check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And we have that Patreon page that we've been mentioning a lot at the beginning of the show. We have 30 patrons now. I know. 30 people to entertain privately. So for as low as $2 a month. You could hang out with me and Samantha once a month, see what we look like. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to see this. <laughs> <laughs> also, for being a patron, you'll get early access to select shows. And by select shows, I mean shows that we have actually finished before the day that they're supposed to be released. So this episode is not going to be amongst the early releases. No, we really cut it close, Kevin. Yes. <laughs> So close that I wonder if this episode's even going to be out Monday. Oh, goodness. I'm sorry. I blame myself, but I blame you, too. And we also occasionally put up uh, deleted content from our episodes. We recently (laughs) put up a lengthy, about 13-minute deleted conversation that we had during the Nurse Peanut episode. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you'd like to hear about mine and Samantha's relationships with significant others who have passed gas on us. Mm Mm-hmm. $2 a month, and you can check that clip out. You're going to want to see this. (laughs) 15 minutes of us talking about farts. (laughs) Totally worth $2. Hey, I laid down some good information on that deleted conversation. It was bizarre. It was. (laughs) It was absolutely fucking bizarre what you said. I still can't get it out of my head. When I I listened back to it, I was embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, only 30 people can hear it right now. That's right. (laughs) So if you'd like to continue embarrassing Samantha, become a patron and hear about this weird fucking farting thing she has. (laughs) I don't fart. Let's get that clear. (sighs) It's not about me. We got a couple of reviews to read. Really? Our first one comes from Just a Listen. Just a Listen writes, I've crossed the line. No regrets. I found this podcast on the Podcasts We Love group, and it was truly a fine. I love how each episode has an awesome tangent that makes me laugh. I also love that the episodes typically cover a unique topic that I hadn't heard on many other shows that I listen to. It's really hard to find a podcast where the hosts are like your friends. 
Samantha and Kevin are those screwed up best friends that when I ask who their favorite serial killer is, they don't respond with a judgmental look. They'll respond with, actually, I want catfished Richard Ramirez. <laughs> Thank you for the great episodes and the colorful commentary. This is probably one of my favorite reviews we ever got. I fucking love that review. I, you know, and there, this person talked about how we seem to them like uh, friends who would, you know, talk about all this fucked up shit with you. I know. We're such good actors. I love that because there's not a lot of people like that around here either. No. You know? I, and I mean, that's why you and I found each other. And, and I am so thankful for the friends that we've made. Yeah. Doing this. Me too. I, I feel like I have. It's the best part. I feel like I have so many people that I can just say weird shit to and not have to post see that with I swear I'm not crazy mm-hmm. yeah. like I do with everybody else that I have to talk to absolutely that's a rad review our second review comes from JDR6589 JDR6589 writes I didn't know I needed this podcast in my life yes it was recommended by Hollywood Crime Scene a few months back and I must say I am hooked this is my idea of a perfect podcast research thoroughly beyond interesting slash insane stories funny but it stays on track i appreciate all the effort kevin and samantha put into each episode i love their voices and they both have cute laughs (laughs) 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 much love from jalessa from bay area california Thank you so much, Thank you. JDR6589. I really love that that review, too. Me Those too. are two solid fucking reviews that we got God. right on back of each other. This finally feels worth it, Kevin. In addition to, or in the stead of leaving a review, you might consider leaving us a voicemail. The Where is the Line official telephone number is 386-227-7848. That spells something. Dumb ass tit. Called Dumbass tit, leave us a show idea. Let us know what you think about us as long as it's something good. Yeah. Say anything you want, really. We've had a call where someone wished that I were would wake up in the middle of the night being uh, having my throat slashed by John Rambo from the Rambo movie franchise. That's right. So really, <laughs> you can say anything you want to. We'll be cool with it. Totally, and we'll play it. Again, that number is 386-227-7848. That spells dumbass tit. On your phone dial. <laughs> we don't have a voicemail that we're going to air for this episode, but I, I do have something uncharacteristically serious to say really quick. Okay. We, we've gotten a few voicemails that we haven't played, and you can never send us anything that is too vulgar No. for us to play, but we've, we've gotten a few voicemails from some people who seemed like they were going through a hard time and that they were sharing things on that voicemail that... um. I don't, I don't think it would be appropriate for us to play it on the show. No. And there there really have been several people who have done this, so I'm, I'm not pointing out one person. But if you're one of those people, please go talk to somebody. We worry about you. Yeah, and if you don't think that there's literally anyone in your life to talk to, of course you know how to get in touch with us and have a real conversation. I am terrible at comforting people. He I might is. be the worst possible person that you could call. But if you're in a, a serious spot, like I feel like some of these people who've called us are, I mean, first, go see somebody that knows what they're doing. If you can't find anybody that knows what they're doing, give us a call. I mean... No, absolutely. Give us a call. We'll either direct you to resources that can help you, 
or we'll just have a conversation with you. I mean, you can video chat with me and Kevin, and we'll at least make you laugh. Yeah. I can guarantee that. And um, our podcast is little enough that I'm just going to do this. If you need to talk to somebody, my personal phone number is 205-349-9441. If you only was a voicemail, call Dumbass Ted. Please. But if you're having some trouble, you need to talk to somebody who is not going to pick up the phone because they never pick up their phone, but who will call you back if you send them a text message. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can you reach out to me. Yeah. I'm terrible, but I am better than nothing. Yeah, and both Kevin and I, we deal with our own issues. We absolutely know what you're going through, where you're coming from. Probably not exactly, but we've been in some bad places ourselves, so we get it. I'm medicated. Yeah. To hell and back. I'm supposed to be medicated, but I can't afford it, so that's why I'm kind of crazy. But we love you all. We do. And we're there for you. I think that's going to do it for this episode. We really do care about you. Even if we haven't talked to you, you listen to our show, which has made me feel better than I have felt in so long. Yes, this has been therapy for me. And yeah, having yeah, people too. that love this show and want to listen to it, it it's definitely given me a sense of purpose that I was struggling to find. Yeah and, yeah. yeah, and so if you're down, don't hesitate to call us. We owe you one. Absolutely. And absolutely no judgment from us. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Unless you've heard an animal, hey, yeah, if and then heard, I'll, if you've heard the I'll show, judge the you know, fuck out of you. Yeah, you're gonna, you gotta do you gotta do something something serious <laughs> yeah, yeah. to get judged by us, and you probably have not done such a no, thing. No, no. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening, and please take care of yourselves. We'll see you again soon. Goodbye. Kids, when you go to bed, stay away from your closets and don't look under your bed.